Welcome to No Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbun on Twitter, and I'm lucky to have with me today Josh Borman, uh, who you may know on Twitter as uh, it's at Bosch J. Uh, Josh, uh, really happy to have you. Uh, thanks for coming on. Howdy, glad to be here. Uh, so you are coming on today to talk a little bit about uh, simulation games. So this is this is uh, a genre that spans kind of a lot uh, from things as sort of like uh, early and isometric as SimCity or or weird as SimAnt to contemporary games like The Sims or strategy games or four uh, 4X games like Stellaris or Europa Universalis. Just games that simulate a particular like era epoch idea. Uh, what exactly do you find interesting about those games? And as a sub part, have I described them in a way that you would find uh, <laughs> to be fair? Yeah, I mean, that that makes sense to me. I think that, um, that what's always appealed to me about uh, sim and strategy games is the ability that you can just sort of go in there and create your own world, uh, your own little world over the course of a long period of time. Uh, and, and the way these games work, you can cut that out. I just burped. Let's try it again. <laughs> Go for it. No problem. <laughs> uh, the way these games work, uh, because you sink yourself into them and because you find yourself creating these worlds, you, you become so invested in uh, everything that's going on. You create stories sort of in your mind that, that justify the things that you've been seeing uh, happening on screen. And because I'm, I, I work in theater and I really care a lot about narrative and stuff like that, uh, I think in a lot of cases, I find that sort of narrative to sometimes be even more compelling than the ones that developers have, like, created to be a story, you know? Right, yeah. I, I think that's really interesting because, of course, like, one of the things that – one of the things that I think is very true about games that operate – and so, like, part of me wants to distinguish between games like – the Sims or uh, any of like the the Sim etc games or uh, City Skylines mm-hmm. um, that kind of roller coaster tycoons another one that right, sort of right, like right. they have a plot line like I've talked a little bit about Sim Golf in this way like there is a plot line there but it um, it doesn't quite operate in the way that a traditional narrative would like it's 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 about it's almost it almost uh, urges you to to do what you're saying to to involve yourself in that narrative. And games like, you know, again, uh, Paradox games like Europa Universalis or Crusader Kings, Crusader Kings 2, that um, are all about narrative. But you're right in saying, and I I think you've hit on something really interesting there, that uh, all of these games sort of have disappointing narratives in a way, or narratives that don't, that players will sometimes complain about in comparison to the ones that their own imaginations come up with. Right. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh yeah, no, no. Uh, I, I was just going to ask. Like, do you think that that's? Do you think that that's something that's like a feature as opposed to a bug? The way you describe it, sort of, it sounds like it's something that these games are meant to bring out. So, are you talking about like the storylines that they try to put into like Sims and strategy games and stuff yeah, like that, like the cutscenes right. in Command and Conquer and like that kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good example, right? Uh, that those don't really uh, do as much for you. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, like, you see that stuff, but it's not what ends up hitting home with you. I mean, like, I think one really great example of that is XCOM, where, um, you know, in the – I haven't played XCOM 2, but I have played, um, you know, the new XCOM remake, the first one. Um, and I, my understanding is that in XCOM 2, there are a lot more of those, like, attempts at storytelling elements. Mm-hmm. Like, to really be like, this is the world that we're living in, and this is somebody's – some scientist's daughter or whatever. I'm like, who cares? 
Um, because, like, if you talk to anybody who's ever played XCOM, what makes it fun is that you name all the commandos after your real-life friends, you send them into battle, and then, you know, when your best buddy from high school, Tony, dies, it, like, feels like your actual buddy has died. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, and it seems like they've leaned into that a little bit, like, with the character customization in XCOM 2. Uh, yeah, totally. It, like, I, I saw a lot of people uh, posting about that when they, when that game came out. They were just like, oh, man, like, I just lost a guy, like, that is brutal, that's just, like, so sad. Uh, it's like a real, a real, uh, a real emotional reaction to just losing a character in a strategy game, which is a very common thing. Yeah, and, and and the same thing also applies to you know other sorts of strategy games. I mean, even a game like say Civilization, mm-hmm. which people do not think of as a narratively driven game, really. Um, you know, you are you are plotting out uh, the course of uh, the, the historical course of the civilization, and like you know, I have incredible memories of some games where like there was one where I played as Rome, and it was just like I basically played as aggressively and militaristically as possible and, uh, you know, got control of all of the city-states and was able to leverage those to just, like, crush my enemies. And so, like, when I finally moved in on China at the end of the day to, like, take down the last enemy, it was the most satisfying feeling in the world because I worked up to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, I I feel that way about, like, even short-form strategy games like um, uh, Age of Empires. Mm. Um we're like, uh, that, that's the one I'm thinking of, right? Uh, hold on, I'm actually going to look at it. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, not Age of Empires. So I'll, I'll edit that out. Rise of Nations. Um, oh, I haven't played Rise of Nations. It's fun. It's kind of like, you know, I'm not as uh, immersed. I mean, I've never really been able to get myself as immersed in uh, sim and strategy games as I'd like to. Uh, for a lot of the reasons you're talking about, I've just never been able to kind of get over that hump, that initial hump to really get into it. Uh, but Rise of Nations is kind of... Uh, tailored especially for that because games generally last about an hour so it's kind of like civilization if civilization was extremely quick um and competitive uh with other players as well so but there's like there's a quality to it that i think if you said it out loud you'd say like oh you know it's kind of funny or it's kind of quirky to play as the greeks and introduce communism or something like that right 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 it's kind of like oh it's, it's a funny joke but what ends up happening is that ends up being like actually one of the more compelling elements of the game where you can kind of like, you can be like, Oh, um, I'm playing as the French and I can institute despotism. That's sort of interesting. Like I, you start thinking about that and that characterizes the character of that particular playthrough. And it, you know, it, it, it encourages a kind of approach to the game that really changes the, the, it changes the flavor of a game that in and of itself is so varied that you couldn't possibly play the same one twice. Well, right, and all those little details. I mean, one thing that I think they're still kind of trying to figure out in terms of civilization is exactly how they want religion to work. Mm. Um, I haven't played Civ Six yet because my computer sadly can't handle it, but um, (laughs) I have seen video of, like, how religious combat and stuff like that works, and they're definitely moving towards something um, because the idea that, like, you can be, um, you know, uh, say, like, you are... I'm going to back up and do that again. Because okay. <clears throat> I also had to cough. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I'll take a sip here, too. Yeah, so, like, for instance, I love playing as, like, Spain and discovering Judaism 
and just like using the extremely militaristic mechanics of the Spanish Inquisition to like spread aggressive Judaism all over the world. Um, and like, <laughs> it's just so stuff like great. that. Or Buddhism or Zoroastrianism, like whatever religion makes the least sense to be expanded militaristically, pretty much just take it and like run with it. Yeah. And you, you, you create this in terms of religious combat, then like you develop the same sort of things that you actually see in history where you have like your religious enemies and they become your biggest targets because you cannot stand the fact that they keep busting in and trying to convert your Jewish city to Zoroastrianism. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Well, there's, there's a, I don't know if you've played uh, Solaris. Um, uh, not. I haven't yet either, but uh, is I, it a 4X game or what kind of game is that? It's it's 4X, yeah, um, which are very difficult for me to get into. I I find them very very difficult. Um, but in any case, there's a uh, there's like, our I think I think we're both friends with him online. Um, Ari Truskin, um, he's a, a nice guy on Twitter. If you don't follow oh. Ari, he's a a good follow. Um, but he's a Will... uh, oh go ahead, sorry. No, I just said will do. I don't. I don't oh. think I do follow him. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, but uh, he plays Stellaris, and we 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 chat about it a bunch. Um, uh, when he, when he's sort of in the middle of the game, and one of the things he's described to me is this quality in the game that revolves around the both the kind of like nation state quality of the civilizations that you run into. So you know, maybe they're imperialistic, maybe they're pacifistic. That can be a thing. Maybe they are, uh, you know totalitarian and they want to conquer everything in the entire world through violence maybe they're sort of like a uh, a pacifistic imperialist state there's all these like variations that can be there and some of the variations happen in terms of either um sort of like low-key religion or fanatical religion mm -hmm. and it, it's interesting the way he describes the alliances there because as you say there's this there's this heightened sense of uh precarity when you're dealing with oh you know the the alien race to the left of me wants to convert all of my people, but we have an alliance um, at least as long as we have this third enemy. But I don't think they're going to want to stop converting all of my people. <laughs> right. So there's like it it yeah it's it's this very um it can be this very rich thing um, that of course I imagine the studios are super on uh walking on eggshells trying to deal with. Right. Absolutely. Because you know you don't want to have it be too on the nose like. Uh, one thing that, for instance, going back to the religion system and civilization, um, the, no religion has like specific qualities to it. Right. Uh, you can just pick whatever it is that you want to assign to that religion. Uh, because if you were to make, you know, Islam give you like a plus 15 combat bonus or something, you know, fucking heads would roll. That would not, that would not work out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or like, you know, you, you, you have like Christianity gives you a, uh, a plus 15 loyalty, but a minus 15, like, I'm just trying to think of like the most, you know, Sci Chris Hitchens thing. My, yeah. Right. Right. Like there you go. Perfect. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like you, you, I think what you have to do when you're setting up systems like that is to create a framing that is, it sort of serves as the launch pad to – sorry, I'm going to rephrase that because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm – yeah, I th I think that what happens when you set up systems like that is, is what you're trying to do is to create a framing 
that sort of sparks the imagination and sparks the idea of like, oh, this is what this could be. And then it allows you to fill in all the rest of the details on your own as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that in some cases, if you are too prescriptive about what you want a certain mechanic to look like, uh, it can then end up creating a, a situation where you are no longer, as a player, able to tell the story because you feel like your decisions, your choices are being overruled by those of the developers. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting balance because, of course, like in most narrative games that aren't strategy or sim games, and, and in some cases like the, the score sheet sports games that I, I talked about on a previous podcast with... Uh, with uh kara um there's a there's a quality that like any other game that isn't those you're expecting the narrative to basically be at the at the developer's uh whims so right now i'm finishing up uh arcane studios uh prey which is a really interesting game it's fun it's you know super evocative uh a really really smart game but it's also a game that's telling me a story right i'm not involved in producing that story and i don't expect to be However, when I start a game like Civilization, that imposition that's so natural in every other game suddenly feels really, really confining. Right. And I think that's kind of what makes these games so intoxicating, too. I mean, and and also, like, having that feeling of just being in absolute control of everything uh, can become so addictive. But it can also help you through difficult times. I mean, uh, a friend of mine was going through a very... A friend of mine was going through a period where he was feeling very down and just very suicidal and got through it pretty much by playing Civilization V. I mean, for like months on end. That was right. the thing. Being able to have that kind of experience was one of the things that gave him some small semblance of meaning when he was unable to find it otherwise. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, a larger version, or not lar- larger is the wrong word, a more comprehensive version of something that's come up a couple of times in the podcast. I think the first time it came up with was with uh, uh, Matt Brady, where we were talking about the the way that small tasks in games provide a sense of immediate meaning that isn't available in the larger, more complex aspects of everyday life. Like right. you know, finish a fetch quest, you finish to the fetch quest, and there's a there's a, a deep satisfaction to that because very rarely in life do you actually finish something and it's done. Um, there's always something in addition to it or, or that's going to come up afterwards or it's a maintenance task or whatever. Um, and and I guess the way you're describing civilization and, and other strategy games of that of that ilk is that it's it's like that, but on such a grand scale that it becomes... I mean, that's why they call them god games, uh, I would imagine. Right, exactly. I mean, there's no limitations on what you can do other than like what the mechanics of the game are um and it also i mean tycoon games are the same way too like uh, certainly the scale is a lot smaller uh you know you're just you're just supervising a theme park but like you can like we all i'm sure have memories of taking the little (laughs) guys picking them up with the pliers and throwing them into the ocean because like that's just what you do yeah, because of course. <laughs> if if you're if you're a vengeful god, you need to seek vengeance. Yeah, and I, I mean, I I remember the most fun thing in the world was going over to my friend's house and and having them load up SimCity 2000 and then put in the cheat that made all the disasters come in. Oh, for sure, yeah. Watch however many disasters could destroy the city. That was fantastic. 
Um, it also explains. I'm trying to remember what that game was called, and it's it's fun. It's funny that I don't because it was supposed to be like a big deal. It was. I think it was made by uh, one of the the early Sim people, but it was a. Um, I think it was black. Maybe it was black and white, um, but it was a god game basically. And the, but the sort of twist in this one was that you know you were making choices and you were trying to decide whether or not you were a vengeful god or a good god, and it, it tracked you throughout and like you know gave you like before fable but kind of like fables mechanics right where uh or the mechanics that fable made famous where you you know over time it decides how good or bad you've been uh and the way you're describing it sort of makes it clear why it didn't work because it's not really about like finding out at the end you know your good score or bad score it's literally about being able to on a whim do something without there being consequences outside of like you know the score of your game or you know the popularity of your theme park that's true i mean you don't if you're a god there is nobody to hold you accountable right and that's what's so exciting about it (laughs) yeah it it must be yeah because you know you can always lose um but the loss scenario in those games is it's not so much a so you lose in something like dark souls it says you died and you have to start over at your last save um, or wherever you start over at, uh, depending on your game. The The loss condition in games like Civilization is just another way the story runs itself out. It's just another, like, it's another ending. Right, and you can reload to the point where it looked like things were starting to go the wrong way, wherever that is, and, mm-hmm. and restart, as opposed to... Something like, say, you know, Dark Souls or another game like that, where it's just a matter of, oh, you just got killed, go back to the last save point. In in something like Civ, you're the the decisions that you've made they pile up over time, and so you mm. might have to go way, 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 way far back in order to be able to correct a mistake that you've made. Right. Yeah. Because you you clicked something because you thought it was funny, or you just did it on impulse, or you thought something was going to pay off and it didn't. And then that hamstrings you, and et cetera, et cetera. Right? There's the there's this there's the level of um, just getting buried uh, in in under under the story, actually. If if, if that's not too metaphorical. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just I was gonna say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it it because I think that your it really comes down to at, at what point do you want to correct the story? Um, because if, if if the idea is that you're creating this narrative and at one point the narrative went the way that you didn't want it to go what is the what is the meaning what, what is the point at which that happened you know in the, like cuz that's a big that's a big part of just narrative in general and in in theater is finding the point at which it's no longer possible uh to have a happy ending like that's mm. that like when i was when i was um w- one thing that i think about sometimes when i'm directing um comedy is that, and I don't remember who said it to me, but it was absolutely brilliant, that in a comedy, they want to preserve the possibility of a happy ending for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And in a tragedy, the tragedy comes when that happy ending becomes no longer possible. That is smart. Yeah, it reminds me of the, it reminds me of the Shakespearean difference between comedy and tragedy, too, where, like, the comedy is meant to reveal a sort of um political tension or political uh claim that shakespeare's making whereas the tragedy you know it's basically at the moment where 
that political commentary becomes, I don't know, otherwise, otherwise foreclosed, otherwise just like overwrought or overdone. And so, and so it actually becomes less political and just more sort of emotive. Which is why the production of Julius Caesar that's up in the park right now has been getting. Uh, have you heard about this whole thing that's been going on? Is that the thing with the? Is that the thing with Trump that I, I saw yeah. that going on? I saw that going on and I couldn't quite place it. So, so give me some background because I missed this. Yeah, now, now we're like way off the video game track, but this is interesting. No, that happens every episode. That's okay. Um, okay. Because <laughs> um, basically the gist of it is there's a production, uh, the the public theater uh, in New York City, which is a, a major not for profit off Broadway theater. Every summer does free Shakespeare in the park. Uh, mm. There's theater, the Delacorte Theater. It's in Central Park. It's absolutely beautiful. And for a number of weeks every summer, they will put up a professional, completely free production of Shakespeare plays. And currently they're doing a pro- production of Julius Caesar, where Caesar is basically Trump. Okay. And the, it, it, it's so on the nose that they, like, change. There's a line where... Uh, they're talking about like the tyranny that Caesar is able to be getting away with these days because everybody likes him so much. And there's a line where it's something about, you know, he could stab somebody and nobody would say anything. And they changed the line to and he could stab somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And it's like, come <laughs> on. Oh, really? No. Really? Oh, that's they had to, that. That's one of those things that you just have to take that temptation and, and tamp it down. Yeah. Trust your audience to get it. Don't don't do it. But that's the thing, like, sort of what you were saying, that, like, if you make it so much that it's about, like, it is literally about this moment, and I'm going to show you why, that Mm. takes away so much of the dramatic impact. Because no longer are you watching a play about people and characters who you're able to empathize with. You're just seeing the current political situation distorted through this really weird mirror. Yeah, that's true. And it, again, like I think it's I think that works better in comedy if you do want to do that sort of like distortion because you could do like you could do a version of I don't know, you could do a version of like Twelfth Night or something like that that played around with like the you know the the jokes about Ivanka and Trump or like the the weird kind of incestuous overtones in that family or you know the the questioning about uh, high and low and 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 flipping around the the status quo or whatever and it would work a little better. It would still be hamfisted, but you could do it in a way that would work a little better. Yeah, Whereas, I mean the. Like, the... The public okay. did – yeah, the, the public actually did for their mobile Shakespeare unit, which is the thing where they get a cast together and they take the show on the road and play at, like, correctional uh, facilities and community centers and oh, libraries cool. and stuff like that. Neat. They did a wonderful production of Twelfth Night uh, where the whole concept was that these people who washed ashore uh, had basically washed ashore from what was implied to be sort of like um, a Caribbean uh, – like like sort of Haiti or something like that, okay. where they had basically fled as immigrants and then oh, landed on the shore of what was basically Florida. And it, <laughs> it, but it, that's it, interesting. The, but the thing is, the reason that it worked is that it didn't try to make these characters be like, look at these people; they are exactly real people in the way that like Caesar is Donald Trump. These are just people who are in situations that we all recognize, mm-hmm. and it actually made it really powerful. That's interesting, and it, it it sort of like it makes me wonder about it makes me wonder about the the valences of comedy and tragedy and relation when it comes to these games too, because it's you know there's a way in which you would never and you know I've seen versions of it I've seen histories done this way so I saw when I was in London I saw a um, I mean ages ago when I studied in London in 2005 I saw a, uh, a I guess I guess it's sort of like a precursor to House of Cards Kevin Spacey in uh, Richard the Second. And they did a uh, they did a Richard II that was very contemporary, very militaristic. 
Uh, it was one of those ones that really was just like a setting update. There wasn't really a lot. It wasn't a high concept uh, re uh, restaging, um, but it worked, and and it works with the histories, and it works with those kinds of things. But it makes me wonder, like, how much in the tragedies are you're just kind of focusing on, you know, empathizing with emotion. That old Aristotelian uh, mm -hmm. uh, saw about uh, the. Uh, catharsis being the evacuation of fear and uh and um it's fear and well fear uh <laughs> and uh you know that 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 idea that that's why you go and see it you go and see it because you want to empathize with hamlet and feel terrified and upset and like sorrowful um and then leave and have those feelings purged from you Whereas in something like Twelfth Night, you want to identify with the lovers because you kind of like find the lover that you find most interesting, or or you like find the character, uh, you know, work around, or you find the character relationship that you like the best. Uh, and I wonder which which of these the games sort of represent, because you could imagine history being a sort of like series of unending tragedies, or you could imagine it being a series of unending comedies. Yeah, and I think I think there's definitely aspects of both, and and I also think that the one game that I think strikes that balance really well, and we're talking about Sims again, is The Sims, mm. which I think has re remained so profoundly popular, precisely because it's able to do exactly that. I mean, because you are basically again creating a narrative about this family uh, that you are building in this virtual world. You see everything that happens. And, and The Sims is, like, with all the classic Maxis games, like, it's just, it has a very silly sense of humor. But over time, you really found, you find yourself bonding to these avatars that you've created. Right. Yeah, and there's something, there's something darkly comic about a lot of The Sims situations you see that, that become famous, like, when they, um, you know, wall a character in on all sides and, and watches the, what, what they do. Um, or... You know, there's all these simulations of like stuff you can do to your Sims characters to torture them, um, and it yeah, it yeah. I mean, the, the the classic one is you take him, you take it, you you put a Sim in the pool, and you take away the ladder. <laughs> oh no, I haven't seen that one. Oh yeah, that's, that's... what you do. They fucking drown. It's amazing. Oh no, that's <laughs> because they can't oh, get out so without a ladder. It's very sad. right, of course. Yeah, no, and it's 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 funny because it it takes away. So we were talking about, like, you know, the, the idea of being the distant god and being able to, like, flick people into the sea for Roller Coaster Tycoon or whatever, um, which, of course, you did, or destroy whole neighborhoods in SimCity on a whim. Um, but in The Sims, like, you can obviously do that. You can you can take away the ladder and kill your Sim. It's not like it's not like the game punishes you for it, um, except within the, the balance of the game itself. But it does – you feel a sort of – I don't know if I would call it regret. That's kind of being a little presumptuous as to what people feel, but there is a sort of like pang of something because they're the, they make these characters empathetic to you as opposed to so distant. Right. I mean, I think that, I think that you experience a little bit of moral culpability. Mm. Um, and it's it might, not, it. yeah. And I mean, it might not be like profound moral culpability, <laughs> but I think you do feel that impulse and like you, you then have the choice to make. You either are like, ha ha, I'm not, I'm going to, this is actually funny, and, I mean, because it is, it's hilarious, but, like... Yeah, sure, no, it's still really funny. You watch, but, even watching them sort of, like, break down and cry is, oh, like... Oh, it's, it's so funny, but, like... Because the animations, they're funny. Right, they're great. <laughs> but at the same time, there's this, just that little bit of you that is, like, an, an empathetic, uh, not empathetic, empathic, I guess, right? Empathic? Empathetic? I think, I think empathetic can work 
whatever. Shoot. Yeah, both could work. Both could I'm going to back up. Okay. There's that part of you that is an empathetic person that sees a representation of another human being suffering and, and that wants to react to that. I really, I really think that's the case. Yeah. Well, no, of course. And I think like that, I always wonder how much, how much these games actually want you to feel that way versus how much they don't. It kind of, it kind of goes back to that question about, you know, how much of the narratives that the games, and of course a game like the Sims doesn't really have one. It's much more, it, it, the, the, the appeal, the sort of uh, selling point is that you, you get to make the choices. Um, but these ideas that the narratives the games create have to skirt around your own narratives and there has to be kind of a, a detente or like if probably even more accurately, their narratives have to take a backseat to yours. You know, it, it's funny to think about this idea of sympathy and how much they, that is the developers, impose that sympathy upon you versus how much the player actually brings to the to the scenario. Hmm. So by that, do you mean like that? You think that? Sorry, I'm I'm having trouble no. putting words together right now for some reason. No, I mean I'm I'm probably I don't think I'm I don't think I'm doing it justice. I'll I'll give you the example that that comes sure. immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, totally. So it's not from a sim, but it's 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 the this example of of a lack of empathy or a game not providing you the tools to to provoke empathy. Um, way back in the day, um, I played uh, I was playing Goldeneye on uh, mm. the N64, which I think is an experience most of us of a certain age have. Um, and in one of it was the jungle mission i can remember that and uh i was playing with a friend and his dad was in the room and so like it was my friend and his brother and his brother was playing his brother was one of those like i don't know like i'm sure it depends on where you grew up but if you grew up in a suburb or a town that wasn't like a super you know you know nice metropolitan urban cosmopolitan place um because I'm sure I'm sure these kids existed there too but probably in slightly different ways but one of those kids that was like a real wild card like you never knew exactly what he was going to do and and a lot of times it was not great uh so he he took the sniper rifle and zoomed in on Natalia who you're supposed to be protecting in these missions and his dad goes don't do it don't do that like if you do that I'm going to like I he was really going to get angry and the kid just did he he shot Natalia and the mission failed or whatever um and, you know, the dad got angry, we had to stop playing or whatever. I don't remember exactly what happened from there. But that moment stuck with me because it it was this moment where, like, the only real consequence, ethically, emotionally, whatever, was that the dad was going to get upset. But the dad mm. really felt like, you shouldn't shoot this innocent person, that's terrible. Um, and so there was this disconnect between us playing the game and him viewing the game. Um, whereas, like, I think in something like The Sims, unlike something like GoldenEye, where if you understand first-person shooters, you don't really have any sort of empathy towards any characters in them. Um, something like The Sims, you you get the sense of empathy even as an expert player, right? Like, you get the sense of, like, feeling for your characters on some level. Uh, and I wonder how much of that is the genre and how much of that... That's a better way of saying it. How much of it is the genre versus how much of it is actually the, the developers themselves? Well, I also think that... <clears throat> I think that uh, mechanics do play a role in this as well. I mean, specifically in the, in the example of shooting Natalia, um, I can't imagine that there's anybody who didn't shoot Natalia because those escort missions are fucking awful. Yeah, well, they're um, terrible. Like, they're so <laughs> bad. And so, you know, even if you don't intentionally shoot her, nine times out of ten, like, you're going to end up accidentally killing her somehow anyway. So, like, that's a, I think that's an example of where, like, the mechanics of the game 
distance you so far away from being able to actually empathize with anybody else um, that you're no longer able to see those characters as people anymore. And I'm also, mm. and, and that's not necessarily even the case, I think, for all FPS games either. I think that there are definitely FPS games that do make you think about the characters that you're, I mean, you'll have some, some of the NPCs, of course, are just going to be like bullet sponges, but there are, there are video games. I mean, Half-Life comes to mind as one really great example where like these people, you actually do perceive them. You perceive the NPCs as more of other people than you do in a lot of other games. Yes, definitely. I, I would, I would completely agree. Like Alex, for instance, is a very, I mean, she's an extremely fleshed out character, probably certainly more so than Gordon is. Because uh, Gordon's just the sort of uh, you know faceless protagonist in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, whereas I mean, Alex gets the personality, and she's she is like sort of a wish fulfillment fantasy to a little bit of a degree. I think. <laughs> I, I think maybe. Um, but but I agree with you. I mean, like at the end of episode two, like I think every single one of us who has played that game is still is like the reason we're so upset that Half Life Three hasn't come out is not that we're so like looking forward to this amazing gameplay, although like we know that. If it ever comes out, it would probably be great. We want yeah. to fucking know what happened to Alex. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's a huge cliffhanger. And the only reason it's a cliffhanger is because you actually care about her as a character. It's not like... I mean, you could imagine a game like... Oh, I'm trying to think of a good example. But, I mean, you don't, don't have to. Like, there's a million games like that. Like, post-Wolfenstein, post-Doom, that created... I mean, Duke Nukem 3D, in some ways, had versions of this. Where, like, there would be some, you know, some woman Duke was going after. It didn't matter. Like, she she was totally just a plot point, not actually like something that was interesting within the story itself or within the mechanics itself. I think, and actually you said that, and I think that's really interesting. The idea that the mechanics inform the mechanics of the game inform how we care about these characters. Like, you know, the ways in which we, um, the ways in which we interact with them in the first place. Right. Well, and two, I mean, if the mechanics don't line up quite correctly, then that's a recipe for not caring. I mean, the example of Natalia and Goldeneye is a really great one, but like to go back to like sim games again, um, mm -hmm. sim and strategy games. There's a game called Mad TV. Are you familiar with it at all? Yeah, I have. is that the game? Is that or, or wait, uh, Smash TV? No, not Smash TV. Mad TV. No, I just know the TV show. <laughs> it's a pretty obscure uh, PC strategy game where you basically run a television network. Okay. And the stated objective in the game is that uh, like you have fallen in love with the daughter of, like, a TV network, and so you need to run the network to win her love or some shit. Oh, weird. And so there's a lot of really solid mechanics in the game that have to do with the management of the station because you have to program stuff that appeals to different audiences. Um, you have to, like, bring in good ratings. The better shows are going to be more expensive. Uh, of eventually, once you have enough money, you can produce your own shows and your own movies and air those on your network. But there's this weird little thing where you also have to, like, program stuff in that the daughter of the network is going to like so that you can win her love. And it is the single most broken fucking aspect of that game, and it makes no sense whatsoever. And <laughs> in a game that is otherwise extremely fun, it sticks out like a sore thumb because it's such an aggressively unfun mechanic. Yeah, it feels like it feels like that thing that everyone complains about in in when when they talk about like early relationships in their lives where they had to like change something about themselves to fit a a significant other. No, exactly. And and what makes it even more infuriating is the fact that like all of the shows that uh, the boss's daughter really likes are like 
shows that get terrible fucking ratings. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that the idea was that they wanted to be like, oh, if we put it in this way, it'll be a bit of a challenge. We have to balance it out. But it's just not fun. Yeah, I mean, there that, that and that's such a that's such a, a brilliant example because like there's so many ways you can make that work. Like you could you could introduce you could introduce like censors or you could introduce investors, right? Like you could say like, oh, these investors really want you to include you know their their kids show and so you have to include it because they said they you said that you have to and it gets bad reviews so you have that challenge there but like the the to line it up with something that you do just because you're supposed to emotionally care about it and obviously it, it, it's part of the end goal of the game you want her to love you as well like to, to win the game but like that sort of victory condition only really works if like you actually also care about it and the only reason you're supposed to care about it is that they show her for like a second in the intro animation. It's so bad. <laughs> is she good looking? I mean, she, I'll have to send you a picture. You can include it as <laughs> as the art for the. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. We'll let we'll let the audience decide. Um, like those those old uh, that old hot or not website. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, always always exciting. You can choose whether um... to swipe left or right on. <laughs> If, honestly, I was about to joke about a, a an app that did that with video game girls, and then I got like <laughs> immediate. I immediately realized it would be a super popular app, and I got like a little a little worried. Oh yeah, you could make money off that for sure. Yeah, easily it would be. Yeah, so so everyone, please don't steal it. I'm gonna my my ships finally come in. Um, so for you as like someone who who's involved in theater, um, and I mean we we can we can sort of uh, dr drift towards an ending here. I don't want to I don't want to keep you too forever, no, but that's like. Fine. Um, as someone who's involved in theater, you know, immediately the, cause I was never, I act, I was okay as an actor, like in a high school sense, I was never someone who was going to actually do it professionally. Um, and I was fine with that. It wasn't really something that was a passion for me, but the, um, uh, I do write and for a while I tried to creatively write and I was, I was never very good at creative writing, but I could hack it as a playwright. Like I could write scripts, I could write okay scripts. Um, and so in my mind, immediately when you're talking about like these sim games connecting them to theater, which I think is a, a brilliant connection, uh, or at least if I think it's brilliant, but even if others don't, it's like, it's certainly evocative. Um, the, the connection I immediately make is like, what would I do if I was writing this story down? How would this sort of look as a story? What are, what are sort of like the, where's the rising action? Where's the, the sort of like, uh, you know, if, if it's a comedy or an improv thing, there's that whole, uh. Uh, Del, um, I'm not gonna think of his name, but the, the improv guy. Yeah, thank you, Del Close, uh, who said follow you, follow the fear, yes, and all that stuff, and and you can imagine versions of that lining up with Sims uh, very well. But it seems to me that you're approaching it more from uh, both the position of the actor and and more uh, maybe more relevantly the director. Um, so how do you sort of like? Is there any way that these two experiences line up for you? The experience of sort of like enjoying these stories within the Sim games. And the experience of like being in charge of a of a production uh, on the on the level of of direction. Well, I mean, I think to me one of the things that makes directing exciting um, is watching moments come together that previously didn't quite click into place. Mm. Um, I mean, I I also am not a particularly great actor, um, <laughs> but. Uh, I have lots of friends who are, and I <laughs> that's all you need. <laughs> exactly, and I know enough about sort of structure and what works well, and I've watched people interact long enough that I know what people actually interacting looks like. Yeah. Um, and so, 
finding sort of the truth in moments to me is one of the things that's most exciting about directing theater because people either connect with something or they don't. And you can immediately tell when an audience doesn't believe what they're seeing because they just check out like that. And mm. you can feel it. You can feel the energy in the room change. And I think that the same is true with games. Um, I, I think that, like, the reason that when people talk about narratives in video games and, like, stories in games being so bad is that they try to force it down your throat rather than trying to figure out what actually works and why. Um, and because, yeah. and I think that, like, the thing about theater is it is an inherently collaborative medium. You have a lot of people working together. But video games, honestly, are the same way. It's just that it takes a lot more technical work to bring it all together. Yeah, and I mean, certainly it's collaborative. I mean, the more and more I learn about the production of video games, it, it has to be collaborative on both the technical and story right. I mean, it, it reminds me in, in no small way of film and theater where, like, you know, you can write something in. I, I think of theater like, you know, if, if you get, like, a particular playwright – uh, I'm thinking, oh, what's what's the one I'm thinking of immediately? Um, oh, help me out! I'm 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 doing I'm doing what the is, thing what I is, hate. What do they do? What does the player do? Yeah, no, no, no. I I know who I want to talk about. Oh, uh, Tom Stoppard. Sure. So Tom Stoppard writes this play. Um, I haven't read it in ages. This is why I had a hard time coming up with Tom Stoppard. I could come up with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yeah. are dead, and I was like, Ugh. yeah. But um, there's another Tom Stoppard play that is a murder mystery, and um, and. Obviously, it's a Tom Stoppard murder mystery, so it's weird and not really, like, you know, a police procedural. Uh, and as someone who loves police procedurals, I was a little disappointed to find that out. Uh, I also love serious literature, but, you know, don't get your peanut butter mixed up with my chocolate there. Uh, but the um, there's a moment in it where, like, the stage direction describes, like, the stage flipping, and all of a sudden, like... The audience is on stage and the the actors are like accusing the audience and like the it was clear Stoppard wrote it just kind of like making a point about stage direction or whatever because um, there's no way it could possibly be staged it, it would be impossible um, and that kind of moment where it's like you can write whatever you want you could say that the stage turns upside down and all the actors fall off of it it matters if they're going to be able to produce it. It matters if like someone on the stage, uh, someone in stage direction or in, in other cases, like when it's just a, a personal interaction, if the director is going to be able to make this work. And it's the same thing with video games. You can write whatever narrative you want, uh, but you need the technology and the dev cycle and everything like else to line up. Um, and that collaboration opens up these, these limitations that I think are extraordinarily productive. Right, because getting around those limitations, that's when you discover, like, pure fucking genius, creative genius. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there are shows that I've seen, and sometimes I just really like seeing, like, super-duper, ultra-low-budget shows. Um, mm. I mean, that's the kind of work that I'm largely doing as well, but um, <laughs> because you can see how... Oh, yeah, can you hear that ice cream truck? That's the good Ooh, stuff. Yeah, I can. Um, you got to run out? Oh, I might. It's really hot. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so hot. So, uh, anyway, what was I talking about? <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> yeah, ice cream. Uh, no, super low-budget shows. Yeah, super low-budget shows. Because you you see you can see these moments where it was like something was written out in the script that is impossible to do given our current constraints. But we have to figure mm -hmm. out a way to do it anyway. And... When that can be pulled off, which is not always the case, uh, but when it is, 
those are the most incredible moments. And I, I guess I'm trying to think of examples in video games uh, that are sort of comparable to that, where I've just been like, wow, this is really something else. Well, it, I think like I think it ties right back to what we, what we started with, which is these, which are simulation games or strategy games or four four X games, where like you, I think the best stories in those games, and part of this also ties into what you feel when you do tabletop RPGs or what you feel like when you do anything that requires both imagination, equal parts imagination and logistics, uh, where like you know someone is doing the logistics, whether or not it's like a dungeon master in the case of like tabletop RPGs. Or whether or not it's the it's like a, a director or an author or uh, whoever, or in the case of these simulation games, the player themselves, where like you're stuck in these moments where you know maybe nine out of ten times your game ends, but in that one tenth of the time, in that one time it happens, it produces this amazing narrative that like all of a sudden you embody and it means it's why people love these games or say like oh I spent you know. 400 hours playing civilization six um yeah that's why it can happen yeah i mean like in XCOM, we all have the story about like the campaign <laughs> where we you know you're you're down to your last man and you're like surrounded by sectoids or whatever and like yeah. for some yeah. like somehow like you're able to toss out one grenade run into this cover of smoke you know you you pick up you pick up like extra clips from your buddy's body who's lying nearby and like with with just sheer willpower you end up like defeating everybody like those are those are absolutely incredible moments that you can only experience in 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 games and in in, in strategy and sim games specifically yeah because they're because they're slow i mean like that and that's a, that's a silly way of saying it but they're slow enough that it makes a narrative as opposed to a reflex like there are moments like that in, in like uh, I always come back to Doom's the the most recent Doom the 2016 Doom because it's I think it's a brilliant game but it, it's a really fun game and like it's a classic first person shooter in, in the sense that basically if you took Doom and took every sort of aspect of its philosophy and made it made the graphics and story better it would be Doom 2016. Uh, so there are moments where like you'll be at super low health and you'll find some way to get out of the out of the thing either by firing your gun a bunch of times or doing you know amazing moves or whatever and like yeah that produces a kind of feeling but ultimately that's a reflex that's a way of you doing something that you've been doing the whole time when you're playing but just like particularly well that time whereas in a strategy game like it's not just it's it's of course like you thinking and and reflexes and things like that but in the moment you're also kind of like experiencing the story being told bit by bit as you make choice by choice by choice by choice. Right. And, and it's, it's too like the fact that so much of that is dependent on chance. And mm. th that's one other thing that makes uh, sim and strategy games a little bit different that I don't think you get quite as much with like modern FPS games, for instance, which are almost entirely scripted in every regard is that so much of it at the end of the day is still dependent on random dice rolls. And so it, much like again, in, in tabletop campaigns where like, you know, you're down to that last thing, you roll and you crit, like, it, it's so infuriating when it doesn't happen, but it makes <laughs> the successes so much more sweet, right? So amazing when it does happen. Yeah, I, uh, I like, I still think back, and it, it's so silly, because I, I didn't actually, I've never actually done terribly much tabletop gaming, but, you know, I, I had a Shadowrun campaign way back in the day when I was a lot younger, and I think back to like how fun that was. Like I played a, I played the the character type or the class where I I basically controlled a bunch of robots that flew around and did things like drones essentially. Um, 
and throughout the whole thing, I just basically got to go around and scavenge stuff or I'd find something and they'd be like, well, let's roll to see if you can make that, you know, your drone or hack it or whatever. And it was so fun. Like it was like, it was like literally feeling like, oh, I'm going around and I'm going to see if I can find something in this trash and there's a chance I will and there's a chance I won't. And just like introducing that sense of randomness, like actual true randomness uh, that you can't game is, is, I don't know, it's like, it's cheap in a certain way, but it really is the secret sauce to a lot of uh, good narrative. Right, and I think that when chance is integrated correctly into a game, it feels exciting rather than uh, like a ripoff, you know? Right. Because when it, when it doesn't, when it's not right, when, when, when chance is too frequent, then you're basically playing Monopoly. And everything is, you know, and, and everything's entirely fucking dependent on what square you land on, and that's not fun at all. Well, yeah, then you then you just bet everything every single time because you're like, well, it's exactly the same chance every single time, so I may as well just go big. And if I lose, then I can end the game, and I don't have to play it anymore. Right, and I mean that's that's what that's what casino gaming is ultimately, yeah. <laughs> and that's why it's not actually <laughs> gaming. True. Yeah, right. Why it's why it's something kind of different, um, unless I guess you're playing, um, you know, high stakes poker sort of operates on a different level and. You know, you can you can imagine chance existing there, but certainly in terms of slots, I mean, yeah, slots, roulette, whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're just you're just wasting time. Man, I don't know where else to go with that. We might we may have we may have come to a this this would be a first and 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 I I credit it entirely to you, but we may have come to a totally organic ending. Um, goodness, I yeah, I, I, I I feel honored. <laughs> yeah, well, you're the yeah. No, it's just it's just because you 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 know you're you're in you're in uh you work in you work in theater, man. You know yeah. how to do a tight. Got to got to find an end too. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, that's that's true too. <laughs> yeah, more than well, that's maybe that's what we could end on because I think like if there's one thing that's kind of different between theater and sim games, it's that sim games or four X games or whatever, and and this is something that I've that I've found talking about them more and more. Like what's interesting about them isn't that is is never their endings. Like no one cares about the ending of Civilization or whatever. Right, like no right. one's gonna who who cares. Um, and, and most times it, they kind of leave it out. Like it might just be like a, a screen that says like congratulations you won and then it'll be credits. Yeah, that's literally all it is. The most exciting thing about the ending is looking at the graphs when it comes right. to Civilization. <laughs> oh yeah, the graphs. Those Graph, are great. Graphs fucking rule, dude. <laughs> yeah, those those are really good. Um, but no, I mean that's exactly right. Like it's not no one cares about the ending. Um. But of course, in theater, you need you need an ending. You need something that that closes it up. Um, it's interesting that like the game that would most sort of resemble the creative process of like building a world um, would also lack that ending point. Would sort of like be able to to reset itself over and over again so naturally, as opposed to theater, which maybe artificially forces you to have like a you know a, a moment of finality, a moment of denouement. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are plays that I see that have a very definite, you know, beginning, middle, and end. And mm -hmm. for any playwright, obviously, finding the ending is the single most difficult part of the of the playwriting process. Oh, absolutely. But I think that some of the plays that I find most exciting uh, in terms of where they end is that they, they they leave you open to think about what's going to happen next. Uh, and, and, and rather than being rather than tying everything up into a neat little bow, it sort of leaves you being like, what the fuck is going to happen to these people? Like, I, I see right. I see how they've changed from where they were at the beginning. 
but there's any number of ways that they could go based on what just happened. Mm. Yeah, that's actually. I mean, even even classic plays like I'm thinking of uh, of um, you know those old that the trend in the '50s where there were those conversation plays, most famously, um, and I guess that's a, a trend in the 1950s that comes from like Eugene O'Neill and 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 uh, so, uh, somewhat even Sartre. Um, but you know, most famously, who's afraid of Virginia? Yes, Woolf. I was gonna say who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah, there you go, my man. <laughs> right there, all right. Because you don't know. A, yeah. at, at the very end, it's like, where are they going to go from here? We've seen that this is what they do every night. We've seen that you know they've gotten into this big brouhaha, but that one rule that was part of their game has been changed. How does that affect the outcome? We don't know. Right. Exactly. And you can you can come up with all sorts of answers. You can talk about it. You can debate it. But like, ultimately, what's really interesting about it is like, you not knowing is part of the actual play itself. Like, you can never lose that aspect of it. Like, that's that's written into it, and that's why it's so so fascinating, so good. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 joked before, and I'll say it again. Like, the, these days, the big thing in theater is like ninety minute plays. You know, like you're in, you're out, um, mm-hmm. which. I think it's great, actually. I mean, but there are plays... I love, I love a short set. Oh, totally. But there are plays that want to be longer, uh, and then there are plays that are long and just feel, like, totally dragged out. And what I always say is, you know, if you're going to have me in a theater for three hours with two intermissions, you better fucking give me Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or I'm not interested. <laughs> no, I get it. That's like, um, I, I always think of that with um, with shows. I went to a lot of shows, like uh, like bands, when mm-hmm. I was... When I was uh, a teen, uh, and I guess I'm like into my twenties. And um, there was I, I I'm the only person in the world. Everyone loves encores. No, I, no, 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 no. Like fake encores, the worst. I don't like them. I really don't. They're they're terrible. I like encores. The encores I can handle. Excuse me. <coughs> the encores I can handle are when the band clearly is packing up and clearly is done. And then the audience is, like, so into them coming back on that they're like, ah, okay. Right, because that's, like, that's what an encore actually is. Right. Like, not, build two extra uh, songs into your set after walking off stage. That's not a fucking encore. I hate that. And it's just everyone knows it. Everyone knows you have to cheer for a while. I remember I, I went to see – I used to go see in high school. I saw AFI a bunch of times, um, the, the sort of uh, East Bay punk band. And every single show they, they would leave, like – two or three songs that everyone wanted to hear and they'd leave the stage before they played them and everyone would cheer. They'd come out and they'd play the songs and most times they do two of them Ugh. and it's like two encores. And after a while, it's just like, okay, I'm done. And there was two, there are two shows I can think of that were perfect that way. One was, that were perfect uh, opposite versions of that. One was um, RJD2 did a good job of it. And the other was Acid Mother's Temple. And RJD2 just did his full set, no encore. It was an hour long. It was perfect. Um, and Acid Mothers did very similar. They they had like a clear set. It might have been an hour and a half. Um, and it was just like it was perfectly done. And in both cases, everyone cheered forever, wanting them to come out again. And they just wouldn't. And I think there's something really pure about that. Like, no, I'm done. Like, I I did it. This is what I this is what I came here to do. It doesn't have to be longer. It doesn't have to be shorter. I I made my performance the exact length it needed to be. And that's just one of the key rules of entertainment is like you always want to leave the audience wanting more. So mm-hmm. if it's a right. concert, don't give them the extra encore. If it's yeah. <laughs> if it's a video game, 
if it's a sim strategy game, at the end of that game, give them a reason to want to hit new game. Right. Yeah, maybe, you know, whether or not it's... And I feel like one of the things that Maxis and Firaxis and, like, all of the all of the sort of, like, sim games, Paradox does the same thing, where, like, what they get really well about their audiences that some games don't get in terms of choices, in terms of, like, multiple endings or whatever. <laughs> what they get is that there's something very elemental that people want to see, which is that when they want to do a a separate or like a, a different ending or a different version of what they've been playing, they want to, um, they want to have like a, they want to have a new experience, but they don't want it to be inorganic. Right. They just want it to kind of happen on its own. Right. They don't want it to be the same experience they already just had. Right. Exactly. Well, I guess that's it. I that's all I have to say on the issue. Uh, uh, Josh, do you have anything else you wanna? You feel we didn't get to? Uh, I mean, I just I had wanted to circle back to Sim Golf because you mentioned it. Do that, it do that it. game rules. It's so good. <laughs> it's so I have to finish it at some point. I uh, I, I was talking to someone actually. Uh, a patron asked me to play it, and I did. And I was like, Yeah, I don't know how far I should get. And he's like, Play oh. to twenty fifty. There's like an interesting ending. Um, so I have to do that. But it's so good. Yeah, it's a great game. It's so wonderful, yeah, yeah, and it's 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 uh, it's vaporware now, so you guys should definitely go out and like download it. It's super fun. You'll probably, you yeah, you'll probably want to turn some of the sound effects off. But like other than that, <laughs> sound effects are quite bad. They're they're pretty <laughs> bad. Yeah, well, it's different era, man. Yeah, just just a different era. You'll get a you'll get a vision into what it was like to game in like 1997. <laughs> it's very true. Um, no, that game is fantastic, and uh, and like. As in terms of like just limitations is is a perfect example of what we were talking about. Um, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, well, my company. Uh, I was talking about theater, uh, and I do have a theater company that some friends and I run. It's called Decent Company. Uh, and wow, that phone just blonked. So I'm gonna do that plug again. Okay, do it. Um. <laughs> yeah. So I do theater. Some of my friends do theater. We have a theater company. It's called Decent Company. Uh, we're based out of New York, so if you happen to be in New York, come by and see a show of ours sometime. We do shows like every other month. Uh, we got a website. It's www.decent.nyc, or you can find us on Facebook slash DecentNYC, or on Twitter or Instagram at the same. All right, great. Well, thanks so much, Josh. Uh, definitely go check out uh, Decent Company. Um, I will. I'm going to go schedule a time where I can actually uh, see one of your shows. Because uh, I want to. Oh yeah, man. Uh, yeah, that would be awesome. And uh, and yeah, follow follow Josh on Twitter at uh, Bosch B O S H J. Um, the one of one of the one of the truly good guys of Twitter. Oh, I appreciate um, that. <laughs> wow, it's just just the truth. Uh, thanks again, man. And uh, yeah, talk to you soon. All right.